Hello, hello, welcome. Hi, uh, I'm Giles Alderson. I'm a director. I have made World of Darkness documentary. I'm also writer and director of the feature film The Dare, which is now in post. And I'm also host of the Filmmakers Podcast. Today is a very special day. We're at the LSF. So what I want, and you all know how to do this, so I want to give a massive round of applause when I introduce each guest. You know how to do this. I think we really should because we've got three fantastic guests. So first of all, I'm joined by John Strickland. As a director, John has worked on a range of award-winning shows such as Prime Suspect 2, Clocking Off, Rebel Heart, In Plain Sight, Line of Duty and Bodies, which was written by Jed Mercurio, who is here today and yesterday as well. And he's currently in post-production on the finale of Troy, Fall of a City, written by David Farr. He's been nominated for a BAFTA three times and has won directing awards for Rebel Heart and Bodies. Ladies and gentlemen, it's John Strickland. Very good, very good. Uh, And also joining us is John Sen, recently directed Casualties 1, an entire episode in one shot. Written by Paul Unwin, he's been working and writing and directing professionally since the year 2000. He's gone on to work as a regular director on several long-running drama series, including Waterloo Road, Stan, Holby and Casualty. He's written for Holby, EastEnders and The Corona. Ladies and gentlemen, it's John Sen! (laughs) And my final John. It has to get louder. It has to get louder each time with the, with the cheers. Yes, they are all Johns. You have worked that out. My final John is Jonathan Newman. In the space of just two years, Jonathan Newman has achieved the impressive feat of adapting two of his award-winning short films into features, which he not only wrote but directed too. They were Foster, starring Tony Collette and Richard E. Grant, and Swinging with the Finkel, starring Martin Freeman. And most recently, he directed the 25 million movie Million dollar movie, I should say. Mariah Mundy and the Midas Box, otherwise known as The Adventurer, released nationwide this year. It's Jonathan Newman, everyone! Thank you very much. Today we are talking about directors working with writers and writers working with directors. It will probably deviate from lots of things in terms of directors and what we do, but we really want to help you guys of how writers work with directors and we and most of us here are writers as well and how that all relates so let's start off with a little background and how you actually got into film and being a director and some of you writers as well Jonathan Strickland let's start with you I went to art school back in the day and I always wanted to direct but didn't think I'd be allowed to for some reason Uh, and then I joined the BBC in the editing department I was a a trainee assistant editor film editor uh, and as an editor, I worked on some great shows. Alan Clock's last film, The Firm, B-Ban, Kidron's, uh, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. And so some really interesting dramas before I got the chance then to... I did the drama director's course, which was three months long. Uh, it ceased to exist for many years, but I think it's now come back again. Um, but then eventually I was offered um, a six-month contract on Brookside, which um, no longer exists either. It's because I'm very old, you see. Were you offered that as a director? Yes. Yes. Because on the director's drama, director's course, I produced a film, a short film, written by Jim Cartwright, uh, which went out in the screenplay First Strand, um, and obviously hawked that around, and then got work on Brookside. And working on um, that show was the best training ground I could have had for any future directing work. On that show, you come across everything that you ever see again in terms of personalities, working practices, 
storytelling, storytelling under pressure of a schedule. Um, it was fantastic. Uh, uh, and then from there on in, uh, the rest is showbiz history, really, isn't it? Kind of Getting that first moment, getting Brookside for that first time, had you made a short? Did it just... How did it, was it just because you were working well, no, on the it's show? Well, no, it's because I had the, 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 the two shorts I made on the drama director's course, but also I made, there was a series called 10 by 10, which was a series of 10-minute documentaries, um, and I'd made one of those as an idea I had whereby it was called The Last Haircut, uh, and it was the fact that in those days and now, my haircuts used to take 10 minutes, but it was, only time, <laughs> it was the only time in my life where I had to sit still for 10 minutes in a chair while your hair's being cut, and therefore very ordinary things became fascinating to me. The arrangement of combs, the, the um, advert for Durex feather-like condoms with a little bit of Christmas tinsel was always there, it never moved, and I kind of grew to like this repetition that these things never changed and in our very you know my very busy life i had to stay still so um i happened to also find out that um he was retiring my barber and so i had this last opportunity to make this and it was about time and how time standing still and um Great, and then the Brookside guys saw that and were like, yes, we want you to... I think they saw the drama from the drama director's course, but also there was also that as well, you know. So I think, you know, short films is... is, And I think if I had my career again, I would have tried to make more of them, really. Had you written that as well? The 10 by 10 I had. Jim Cartwright wrote the... uh, The the short. The shorts. Great. Okay, good start. It's a great start, really, getting Brookside. John Sen, let's, let's talk to you. Same again. Your start in the business, how did it happen? So I began as an editor, a uh, film editor. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great way of learning how everything's put together, structure primarily. But um, yeah, I started in documentaries. I uh, worked for a company called 2020 and was doing current affairs uh, editing for them. And then when that show stopped, I became an editor on Channel 4 documentaries like uh, Secret History, Witness, Cutting Edge, those kind of, that range of documentaries, which is fantastic. They were wonderful programs. Uh, and then, you know, like all directors, uh, you know, who are editing, your ego gets the better of you and you kind of go, why am I saving somebody else's rushes? Yeah, I could do I better I want to save my own. Yes. Then I, I wrote and directed, I had a series of lucky breaks over like four years. I uh, was part of something called 30 Under 30, which was something that went to the Edinburgh uh, Festival. Uh, the TV festival, and they took 30 people f- who were under the age of 30. Uh, and the centrepiece of this was a commission from the BBC, and it was a £100,000 commission, to, but you had to pitch it live in front of an audience. And I kind of pitched, uh, all of us pitched, and eventually I won. And so uh, they gave me £100,000, to well, a commission worth £100,000 to write and direct a piece of drama. And uh, then I had to chase them down because they all kind of disappeared and kind of forgotten <laughs> they'd given it me. You know, <laughs> the check didn't arrive. Yeah, you know, where is it? Lo- there was lots of kind of when's this going to you know when's this going to happen? Uh, eventually, it did. I made the Love Doctor, which was a half hour written and directed by me, produced by Laura Hastings Smith, who now who went then went on to do Hunger and all that. Uh, some fantastic big, films, big films, big films, starring Heathcote Williams, who uh, recently passed away sadly, uh, Enzo Cilenti, who I'd gone to school with, and um, Nitin Ganatra. Um, so it was, it was a great, and that was brilliant, and that kind of did festivals. Uh, but then, you know, as it happens when you're directing there, you know, you've got this great thing, and you send it out there, and then nothing happens at all. Uh, and you're like, why is the phone not ringing? And I was just, I'd made another short, 
I was kind of on the train once. I remember it really clearly. I was on the train back from Watford, having just kind of uh, given about two months up of my life to make a very cheap, low-budget short with some students. And I was literally going, oh, no, my career is like on its, on the floor. You know, Spielberg was making Jaws at 28. What am I doing? You know, I'm on a train to Watford. Like, <laughs> it's just not going well for me. And I got this phone call. Um, it was, and it was one of those phone calls. And uh, this, uh, this woman said, are you John Sen? My name's Catherine Waring. And I didn't know her name at the time, but she was daughter, the daughter of um, Michael Waring, who is a fantastically, uh, you know, wonderful and creative BBC producer, one of the old school kind of, and he'd done Edge of Darkness, the original series, and and, he'd, uh, and Catherine had kind of followed in his footsteps and made our mutual friend and was BAFTA award winning. And she discovered Julian Farino and she discovered um, Joe Wright. Um, and she loved working with directors who she'd spotted something in and she'd seen a kind of uh, the, the short and she'd seen a half hour Channel 4 thing, really, one of the coming ups that I'd done. And... Uh, so she said, uh, is that John Sen? Uh, well, I've got, uh, I'm making this, I'm producing a Channel 4 series. It's two parts. It's two 90s. It's set between Britain, uh, London and Calcutta. And Nitin Sawney's doing the soundtrack. And, you know, I think Ampuri is going to be in it. And would wow. you be interested? Uh, and <laughs> um, you know, it's a free <laughs> budget. And I, and I was like, yes, I really. And um, all my agent kind of went, John, don't get too excited because you're not going to get this because everybody in the world is up for this. And, you know, this is just kind of... Uh, but then, you know, Catherine being Catherine, she really got behind my vision for the for the piece, and that was my big break. Wow! And then subsequent to that, you know, all the other stuff comes. But that was those were I had like four years of kind of of, of up and students, then kind of trying to get out of that. Yes, yeah, exactly in their film world. But that that uh, the up and downs of one's directing career is is something that just. I think that stays with you forever. I think it does. Yeah. So Jonathan Newman, perfect timing. Let's talk about yourself. What was Uh, your beginning? I, so I went to film school. I went to the Northern Film School in Leeds uh, in like 96, 97. And then I went off to LA and I worked on a movie. um, uh, And I came back and thought, you know, it's time for me to, to make a film. So I, I happened to have one of these enormous guides to the Marche de film in Cannes. And it had pictures and telephone numbers this was before internet, um, by the way. And uh, I was just kind of scrolling through, and I saw British Telecom. This is very random. Um, I saw British Telecom was in there, and I thought, that's interesting. I wonder why they attend you know, the, the, the markets in Cannes. They must have some multimedia interest. There was a picture of this woman, and her name was Joe, I'll never forget, and a telephone number. I called up that number, and I said, hi, I'm a filmmaker. Will you give me 10,000 pounds? <laughs> to make a short film. That's how to do it. Right? And mm. she said, um, do you know what? Actually, um, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't quite that simple. But she said, uh, it's actually really good timing because we're testing this new technology called broadband. Mm-hmm. Okay? Totally Have new technology. <laughs> and we want we want to own some content um, to be able to stream over the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> as it was known then. As it was known back then, <laughs> exactly. And this was all dial-up then. We were all doing the... Those things. And um, so she... I had written a short script, and I thought, a friend of mine just made a feature, and, uh, you know, there's nothing like um, envy to really inspire you to greater heights. Sure. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, every time a, my friend has success, a little piece of me dies. Um, so a little piece of me died and I thought <laughs> that, you know what, 
I, I'm going to actually not make a short film. I'm going to make a feature film. So I wrote this feature film in like 20 days. And it was called Being Considered. And it was with James Dreyfus. Do you remember James Dreyfus? Of course. Gimme, yeah. gimme, gimme. And an uh, and, uh, unknown actor called David Tennant. Right. Who actually I'd worked with him on a film in L.A. And he was the lead in that. And we became friends. But he didn't, his career never d- hadn't taken off yet. So I made this film. And it was with Saeed Jaffrey. And I had 10,000 pounds. And my mom did the catering. And, you know, I blagged this film equipment. And... Um, we had no permits for anything. It was really guerrilla. And we went around London shooting it. And uh, that, was, that was the first. But then after I made that film, the phone didn't ring, okay? <laughs> as you expect it to do. And, uh, you know, you wonder why. So I thought um, I had to reinvent myself slightly. And I'd see all these people going off making gritty films in the North, winning awards and getting TV work. And I thought, I'm in the wrong genre. Okay. So I went and I wrote this very sentimental little film called Foster, about a little foster child. And uh, it went on and um, it won the Rhode Island Film Festival. And I was walking down the street and I get a call from um, Peter Farrelly. Wow. Who made the Something the About Farrelly Mary. Brothers. Yeah. yeah. Right? And I'm in Cricklewood. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, Peter who? <laughs> And he's like, Peter Farrelly, I made this something about Mary. And I'm like, oh, yes. Oh, that Peter. That, that little yes. thing. And he said, I saw your film in Rhode Island and I really loved it. And, uh, you know, have you thought about making it into a feature film? And I said, yeah. And I hadn't. Of course, I had no, nothing beyond the short film. And so I said, look, I'm going to come out to L.A. and meet you because this was an open door. And so I flew out to L.A. I met him and he's like, you know, maybe I should set you up at uh, go, go Meet DreamWorks and Fox. Wow. Right? And then, um, but he said, I'm a little apprehensive because you don't have a script and a story. So maybe I shouldn't do it. Whoa. I'm like, no, you should do it. <laughs> yeah. You should definitely yep. do it. So the next day I'm at DreamWorks and like Steven Spielberg walks past and he's like, hi. And I'm like, hi. Um, and uh, I have a meeting at DreamWorks and I have a meeting at Fox pitching a story that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately it completely fizzled out. So then, um, you know, I... Really, I got my next break, proper break, because I entered a competition run by a company called Filmmake in America, um, run by a, a very prolific Indian producer who made Bended Like Beckham. And it was for the Ford Mustang. And I wrote this script in like 10 minutes. And I went and shot this movie called Father's Day. And it won this competition. And then he called me up and said, I liked it. What else do you have? And I sent him, I'd made Swinging with the Finkels, a short film, and I'd made Foster. He said, I really like the Finkels. Do you want to make that into a feature? And I said, yes. And he said, go write it, and I'll finance it, and we'll be on set in six months. Wow. And that's what happened. Oh, wow, what a journey. Yes. Thank you. Round of applause. That's so lovely, isn't it? When those things happen, it's almost almost like the dream, isn't it? So is that ever going to happen? And it did for you. And, you know, and the key is... um, you know, I'm a firm believer. Well, I always, Chris and I always say there's like a little magic triangle, which is our formula for success. And it's, it's a triangle of luck on one side, talent on the other, and then the really magical element on the bottom, which is action. So if you don't take action, you know, um, when you take action, your chances of being lucky increase, you know, because you have as much luck as you have. But when you take action and you enter that competition or you make that film, you know, doors open. 
and and opportunities present themselves and then it's up to you to walk through that door absolutely and that action bit is probably massively long massively but that's okay yeah. that's okay as long as you're working hard and constantly putting yourself out there Correct. cool so let's talk about working with writers john you work with many when you work with writers do you obviously with a lot of tv do you get the script sent to you and then does it change that way how does it work for you um yes i'm in that fortunate position where I'm sent scripts and um, we, we start from there. And, and obviously, if I have a positive response to it, then take things further. You know, Jed Mercurio and myself, he writes uh, Line of Duty and Bodies before that. We're a bit like Simon and Garfunkel. You know, he writes it all and I come along and sing. Um, <laughs> Simon and Garfunkel is a 60s pop duo just for, you know. Um, so I'm very fortunate in that, in that regard, you know. And, uh, you know, script performance direction is the kind of the order of events and obviously while the director has you know an influence on the above too you know if you've got a good script you've got a great cast you know as a director your job is made that much easier just to tell that story um so yes um and then you know i have tried to develop things in the past um and i've got something going at the moment with a canadian writer which in fact jed hooked me up with him it's about canada's historical abuse of its indigenous population but that's you know we've been on the treatment for over a year now um and it's as we all know it's it's a a hellishly long process to try and find out what your story is and then present it in a way that people want to know more do you work in a collaborative way do you sort of give notes uh do you then want him to change things and come back and it is collaborative and that's the that's the best way it should be and and um you know jed is as with most of the writers i work with is uh, open to suggestions and um you know so that you can you you take ownership of those of those stories as, as a director and the same with the actors you know they they have input so um in a very healthy situation you are a team making the show and obviously we are all in line behind Jed's script. Yeah. Okay, John, uh, John Sen, do you look for the... It's just there. Uh, the same for you. When, so, so let's, let's go to Casualty first with, this, with the one thing. Um, how... I mean, that must have been amazing to make. We'll maybe come back to that in a minute. But in terms of the script for that, because obviously now you've got to think about where my shots are going to go how am i going to do this in one so therefore the the script has to match what i want to do with the with the direction of it is that what happened first or did the script arrive and then you went there's no way we can get from that location to that location so i work uh in continuing drama and continuing drama the script's always uh a prior to the to the directors coming on board by the time the director arrives you're probably on draft three or four Uh, With the one shot, it was slightly different because Paul Unwin, uh, well, A, Paul Unwin wrote it. Paul Unwin created Casualty um, and and he's a director as well. So he had a directorial eye over it. So it did flow in the way that it needed to flow. Um, I when, when I started, when I got it on its feet. Yeah, I all kind of started planning it through in my head. I realised he hadn't been ambitious enough and he'd stuck to the downstairs. And what I really wanted to do with it was because I sensed that we would get to the point where it would just feel like a trip around a set, circular trip around the set. So then we started adding things up in. So um, 
I uh, then did a move which went over somebody's head. So we had to have two cameramen and then uh, the second cameraman um, who uh, d- then took took on the, the mantle as it were, went backwards up some stairs, then went to the, the upstairs, then flew off down. And then uh, during a fight sequence, he gave it back to the kind of the A cameraman. So it was it was it was a, a great thing to do from that point of view and then work with Paul to say, look, Paul, we can do more than what you what you've kind of written in the script so let's kind of look at changing this so that was but that was very unique I think in that I came on a little early because everybody was you know quite frankly terrified of whether they were going to be able to achieve a 48 minute uh, episode in one shot so um uh, they wanted me on so they could I could take away their fears and their pain and uh, and kind of go yeah it's fine we'll do it so, but normally you come on probably draft three or four uh the script is quite well developed by then and it is one of the greatest um, problems, I think, in continuing drama at the moment is that the writer and director are kept uh, separate and apart. And it's something that we're working um, as, as that I'm working with DUK, the director UK, uh, in conjunction with continuing drama and, uh, you know, Ollie Kent at continuing drama. And we're looking at ways in which the writer and director can get into the same room uh, and are not kind of uh, held apart because, yeah. Um, and it's 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 what happens in that uh, genre because it is a high output. Forty eight episodes a year is high output, so it devolves to being a producer's medium. I mean, I would argue that most TV is a producer's medium, really, um, and it devolves. But particularly in that in that medium of continuing drama, uh, it needs the show needs to kind of go on, as it were, and it and it goes on by getting made. And producers don't want. Uh, for various reasons, um, uh, to have writers and directors getting together and getting really excited about a single episode, which then goes off on a massive tangent and kind of knocks the rest of the 48 out of sync. Yeah, it's got to make sense. It's got to fit in yeah. with, in line. I mean, it's, yeah. But uh, but keeping them apart has been, uh, and keeping writers and directors apart is, is, is detrimental, to, excuse me, detrimental to the quality of, uh, of, of the output. And that's kind of something we're looking to change. And what do you look for in the scripts that, uh, arrive for you um like you say and sometimes in the drums it just turns up do you then get a chance to go do you know what this it doesn't feel right or on tv yes. you do you I do uh i mean within reason if you turn up and you go oh that stunt doesn't work and actually those characters aren't very good uh and you know everybody is, is slightly tearing their hair out and, and really kind of reluctant to take on your ideas you've got to be aware as a director in uh continuing drama that you have you've got only a, a a kind of small leeway really um to to change what's there and um and make it fresh and original that's always very important but you can't go kind of tearing the script up at that stage because you're shooting it in i think when you arrive you're going to shoot two scripts in probably three and a half four weeks from when you arrive so big changes ain't going to happen sure are, are the writers sometimes on set with you on tv never Oh, well, not in the. Not, I mean, I have done when I did Second Generation. Neil Biswas was on set. Um, when I did uh, a BBC Two biopic where Neil um, Neil Brand was was there, uh, and that's really great to have a writer on set. Yeah, I agree. Um, but but what's more important? I don't know if you two agree with this, but um, is to have a, a collaborative, clear, constructive relationship prior to shooting. Because by the time you turn up on the set, uh, 
you know, uh, yeah, the jobs, well, yeah, exactly. Most of it, all the key decisions have been made and, um, you know, there's not much... Not much room for leeway because you've already set what you need to do. It's true. And you're only concentrating on those moments on, on the set. You go, well, I've just got to do this now. It's harder to see the bigger picture sometimes when you're just concentrating on a scene or you're trying to get a performance from an actor. Yeah, and humouring the writer is, uh, on, on a set is... It's the last thing. Is, is, I, mean, I, I, mean, I mean that in kind of... Because I've been a writer on... Last year, I wrote The Coroner and I went to visit the set. Somebody else was directing. And actually, you know, having the writer uh, on set is quite a difficult thing for the director because they're looking over their shoulders slightly. They're not focused on kind of what they're shooting. You know, all the key decisions um, that, that you need to work with uh, a writer on should be should happen prior to the shoot. Yeah. And uh, Jonathan, when you, cause you've written pretty much all the stuff you've done yourself, right? Yeah. How do you find working with yourself? Myself, yeah. It's a <laughs> daily struggle. It's a daily battle. And I never win. You never win? I never win. that writer behind you, behind which is me. you, is going, no, no, that's not what exactly. I want. Exactly. I always have to have the last word, <laughs> yeah. um, which is difficult when you're yourself. Yes. Um, but, you know, I guess, well, the biggest problem when you're yourself is that uh, it... <laughs> or myself, is, um, you know, the lack of objectivity of your own work. And, and you, you know, as a filmmaker as well, you know, you need someone else. You need to step aside because you get lost, you know, when and you don't know anymore. It's like when you edit the film, you know, you lose objectivity. You lose sight of what you're writing. Um, so I think, you know, as a writer, as a filmmaker, as a producer, the important thing is you are open to the process and you're open to feedback um, of the people that are financing it, not everyone, you know, um, because a lot then of people it, do give feedback. Everyone, everyone gives feedback. Everyone Every has an producer opinion. In yeah. the room, even and you're like, who do you guy. listen to? Yeah, you know, um, and and it's a never ending. I mean, if you listen to everyone, that's why you you really have to choose your battles very carefully. You know, fight for the things that you, as a writer, you believe in. Um, you know, and let some other battles go. You know, in order to win the war, as they say. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember one of my first projects, um, which never got made, but I must have done literally 40 drafts of it, you know, and this was, and the film council was financing it. Okay. And when we had a film council and we went in there and he said, I love it. I want to be a part of it. How much do you want? And then we spent another year doing, with their development team, doing another 25 tweaks. Right. And, and we never made the movie. Oh. So, yeah. Was there a reason for that? Was it script based or was it money? <laughs> It was just a combination. I think you can spend, you know, I mean, I'm a little impatient, you know, but my producer was the opposite. He was too detailed. And if you spend too long and too much time tweaking, you know, you lose, there it comes a time where you lose the original heart. heart. Yeah. Exactly. It's, you can forever hard. tweak. And the thing is, there's no right or wrong. There's only our subjective opinions mm. about scripts. Um, which is why you have to choose your battles. I mean, I've been in very um, frictious. Is that the word, frictious? It's a good word. Fractious, fractious <laughs> even. Um, meetings with writers who don't want to give, you know, anything. You know, uh, when, this is when I've been working on projects I haven't written. You know, there's no give and take at all because someone so doggedly holds on to absolutely every, wow. everything. 
Um, and you know, it's about working with someone, and mm. and and it's give and take. So that's why I say choose your choose your battles. Yeah, I agree. I I got lucky with the dare, the film I made, because myself and Johnny wrote it together. So when he was on set and I was directing something, I just there was a there was a line that wasn't right. I didn't feel right. I go, Johnny, just go go tweak that little bit for me. And he would. He'd come back and he'd go, well, How about this? How about that? And suddenly I had three brilliant options that I could go. That works. Cool. Try that and put it in. So for me, having him on set when he was there was fantastic. Because it was just like another voice that knew the film really well that could really help me guide yeah. it through. Um, yeah, so that, I found that really interesting to have that. So when you've worked with other writers apart from yourself, yeah. and like you say, sometimes it can be practice. How, how is that? How have you found that relationship been good um, most of the time? Yeah, most of the time it's good. I mean, because I, I think I now work with writers that, uh, you know, you c- if there's a red flag in the beginning, you mm. have to be aware of that. Yeah. And you can tell... In any relationship, not just filmic, you know, if there's a red flag. So if there are red flags at the beginning, then be wary that there'll be red flags later on. That's okay. And, and this is writers being uh, too aggressive over their work? Yeah. Or? Too, too, too holding on, you know, because everyone wants to... Possess it. Yeah, you know, mm. you, you, uh, you fall in love. Nothing smells as good as your own, you know, what? Um, <laughs> Sometimes. Right. Uh, <laughs> and when you've written a script, you know, it's, it's your work is you, you hold on to stuff, you know, um, adamantly and you find, you know, if a director is challenging you and saying, I'm not sure we need the scene and you know, you probably think as a writer that you do need it. So there's, there's always that friction, um, as a writer of, ha- of, you know, letting go of your opinion and your need to be right and, and appreciating the overall creative process. If you are striving for the best possible work you can make as a writer, as a director, then it doesn't matter where the idea should come from. You know, that should be the overwhelming um, way that you, you, you know, develop that project. Yes, yeah, it's going to kill your babies. They say it a lot, but it is, it's one of those things. If, if the director's saying, no, we, I don't like this, it doesn't work, then you do have to let it go. Yeah. You have to let it go. Um, John, let's talk about working with Jed, if you don't mind, a little bit. Um, obviously, you did Line of Duty with him and Bodies, and maybe we can show a scene in a minute as well. How was that collaborative process, um, working with him? Jed is um, quite uh, unique in that regard. I mean, he's worked his way up to being uh, an executive producer on the shows that he's written. And he is with you every step of the way. Sometimes it's a bit like having a grumpy dad looking over your shoulder, making sure you've done your homework correctly. <laughs> uh, but it's mostly it's a very positive uh, relationship. And I think my work is better because he is there working together on it. And the same with the actors too, that is a very collaborative process. I mean, I have worked on a couple of shows where the writers have clung to their scripts like life rafts and wouldn't let go of anything. And I think those shows are the poorer because of it. They're a bit like storyboards. If you did an action sequence and just did the shots that were written in, which were drawn in your storyboards, it would all look rather stiff and unfeeling. And I think those particular projects have ended up that way because there was such an intensity about, you know, my word is law and saying to the actors, you say these lines because they're written in the script approach isn't going to get the best out of those actors who have, you know, can make positive and will make positive suggestions, which will improve the whole process, you know. So that's my answer. And Jed is of that 
I mean, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. And if the idea has a logic to it, then uh, and he can see the benefits, then he's entirely up for that, you know. Mm. And it's very important to have that sort of fruitful relationship with the writer of something, especially like that, with a drama like that, right? Absolutely, yes. But I think it's why his, you know, it is a success is because of the involvement of all the the team around it. Uh, It's what we're saying in the the talk just before this, you know. that is the, the why it is, is a success, and I think any writer who closes their mind off to any other suggestions is is, is a shame, and you won't get the best out of your own material. I think. And when it was first uh, given to you, uh, the project, uh, did it did it come like, look, we'd we'd like you to direct this, or was it look, we'd we'd like you to read this, and did it make a difference whether your opinion on it at that point? Well, my my opinion would be, you know, either I either like it or I didn't, you know, and, and obviously I did, and I came in the second half of series three, so it was all up and running. But there was still a way to go, and my personality was different from the other directors in the series, and so you know that that comes across. Um, I think I don't know how, but obviously I will approach a scene differently to other directors. Um, but no, and and because of bodies, which I'd worked with Jed on before. In fact, I've done I think I've done about thirteen and a half hours of his material, which I'm very lucky to have done. That doesn't include the several hours that are on the cutting room floor that never made it for various reasons, because. I mean, part of the uh, nomenclature of the show are some very long interview scenes in Line of Duty. The longest we did was about 47 minutes. The show's only 60 minutes long, <laughs> you know, so obviously they get cut down, but that's the way of it. You know, it, it's, there's a lot of writing there. And then during the edit, we, we, we trim it and we cut it. And so the whole is it's an organic process. And on Line of Duty, will, will Jed or whichever write, who is writing Line of Duty that episode? It's always Jed. Always Jed. Yes, he's only here. There's no writer's room. It's just Jed just Jed. The whole thing. Yeah. So on that, will he come into the edit room and have a look at that as well when you're cutting down some of those interrogations? Yes, scenes? I mean, he, lo- he looks at um, assemblies, which is, a, you know, it's a common thing. Some execs look at assemblies during the show. Um, you know, the idea of a director's cut, as this talk is called, is um, a bit of a rarity, really. I mean, on the show I'm doing at the moment, you know, I have a couple of weeks to knock it into shape before I show the producer. But on line of duty, because the whole thing is organic, and we can tell Jed can see from an assembly of a couple of scenes that actually they work so well. We don't need that scene that's coming up in our schedule. We can get rid of it. So it's, it's a very creative, positive thing. I'm not intimidated by Jed. I'm going to work in the States as well, where he's much more intimidating and much more uh, unpleasant, actually. You know, I've been told to change blockings. I've been, you know, it's just a different process in the States. They have showrunners in the States, and Jed likes to call himself a showrunner. In the States, when you have 26 episodes in a series multiple writers even a writer's room you do need somebody and they're always writers showrunners uh, and producers who will keep the quality of that product the same because they want 26 episodes that feel the same all the way through like csi and what have you um and the director gets i mean it's interesting or not but for an hour of american television a director gets eight days prep eight days shoot four days for the edit and you're off that's it and the producers do everything else over here, for you know, you you probably get three weeks of three weeks of prep, two weeks to shoot it, six weeks of post production. The edits, it's just a different animal. Over yeah, there. you're you're much more involved in the UK in terms of your yes, shows rather than the US. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Good. And in terms of the actors in Line of Duty, I mean, stunning performances and everything yes. that's gone on. Um, and in terms of the writing, has there ever an actor come forward and said, "Look, I'm not happy with this line. Can I change it?" Has how's that on set for you? Um, I mean, I like to, there's, I mean, there's a rehearsal, there's a read through where we all sit around the table and read the script. There are notes after that from the producers and ourselves and also from the actors too, who 
as Jed will say, they kind of own their characters by now, certainly in season three, four, you know, and, and the other two. So, you know, their, their, their opinions are very, very valid. I remember one case where Ted Hastings' character has a rela- is on the cusp of a relationship with a character called Jill Bigelow, who's a legal uh, mind in the show briefly. And Jed had written that the two of them get it on and they kind of spend the night together. Um, but Adrian Dunbar, who plays Hastings, said that he felt that they wouldn't, that, that Ted would stop at a certain point and explain all his reasons why he thought that. And so Jed, you know, bought that and changed it. Um, so, you know, there are big, big uh, influences from the actors, as it should be, you know. Mm. Johnson, have you found the same thing uh, when you've just come on as a writer uh, and then talk to us about the differences when you're just a director and you're writer on board as well? I mean, as, as a writer on those shows, I mean, there's a slight... One has to be slightly wary because having done both, I'm really aware as well that as a director, when I because I started directing the show and then uh, subsequently have written it, and as a director, you come on and you've got to be careful that you don't just try and do your thing with it, that you try and... Uh, so you know, actors will often g- come up to me uh, as a director and kind of go, "This line doesn't work. Let's change this line." And my first instinct, where when I was less experienced, was to go, "Yeah, whatever your character does, you know your character." And actually, it's very important to try that line because there's something in the way it's written, and I'm much more uh, having written the show now and understand what goes into that process. I'm much more loyal to what the writer has is attempting. Now, if we attempt it and the actor still comes back or the scene doesn't quite work or it feels a bit clunky, then we'll look at kind of changing it. But I've got through and I fight the knee-jerk, uh, the writer doesn't know what they're doing kind of moment, which you know happens a lot in, in Fast Turnaround, kind of like, but because the writer's not there as well and because, you know, it's, there's a whole host of reasons. And on, and on set, there's a lot of, pressure and a lot of tension and you know it's, it's a different environment to the one uh john strickland works in it's much more let's get this kind of you know we've got a lot to achieve in a day and My environment too but, but <laughs> well, no, we have got a lot to achieve but uh, yeah. i don't have to, you know i don't have jed kind of you know they're kind of able to sign off his the changes do you know what i mean i think that i think that's i think that's um and the writer's not there and often the absence of a writer on the set uh in a continuing drama means that the script is often you know, the, the, the whipping boy of it, yes. uh, of, of the process. Yeah. And so you end up kind of, oh, you know, this writer. Uh, and, you know, ha- having done both, I kind, of, I, I kind of feel the pain of the writer in that process. But so I'm much more loyal now as a director to what is attempt, you know, what the writer is trying to achieve. And I was certainly that with Paul. And I would say to Paul, I'm not sure about this line. He would, and he would say to me, just try it, just kind of try it. And, you know, largely he was kind of right uh, not always, actually, and we had to kind of change a bit. And, the, and there was because we did eight takes of the one shot, and it was only on the sixth that I kind of suddenly went, "Oh, there's that bit there that's really uncomfortable." And actually, if you've got if you if you see a see it briefly, it could actually look a bit racist, actually, Paul. You know, kind of like you know, I, I, and he didn't, of course, he you know he didn't mean that, but just the way I was staging it and the way we were doing it, and it just kind of there was um, in an effort to be multicultural, we were actually kind of not being, uh, and it was kind of slightly uncomfortable, and it was only on the sixth, you know, take that I kind of went, oh, actually, we need to get rid of that. That's where we work as well, kind of trying to do that. But uh, so it, it's it's different. I, I'm going to write and direct my own episode 
later in the year. Is this the first time you'll have done that? The first time I've been allowed. Uh, really? Yeah, Is yeah, there a reason yeah. why they wouldn't allow you to do that? It's, I, I think it's to do with anxiety about um, people having too much control, one person having too much control in that, uh, in, in, in that medium, I think. Uh, it's, it's quite, it's quite difficult because if I get carried away and I don't have a kind of, you know, then the whole thing kind of, I mean, they, now that I've kind of written, I don't know, 14, 15, and I've directed 30 and I know the people who, the producers who, you know, they know me well enough to know that I won't get carried away and, uh, go off on one or kind of try and do something incredibly like make an art film out of my kind of one hour sketch. You know, there, there are those anxieties, but yeah, it's the first time and I've been fighting for a long time to, to do that. Um, so we will see. That's yes. Kind of, you know. Yes, we will indeed. Jonathan Newman, would you find... No, let's talk about you when you, your process. So you, you've made your short film, you've talked about Foster and you've talked about Swinging the Finkles. How then did you turn that short into a feature, not really knowing what you were going to do with it at that point? Well, I mean, that, that, it's difficult. I mean, taking a short into a feature, I, I find, is really difficult. Yeah, because the short is a whole. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a contained and often it's a vignette and mm-hmm. it may not necessarily have, you know, enough narrative so you have to kind of really reinvent the story. So, you know, for me, I, I, I had the central idea and then I had to create a proper structure narrative, you know, with both of those movies. What was your process? Did you sit down and go, I'm going to do three-act structure, I'm going to follow this book, this idea? Yeah, I mean, what I like to do when I'm writing, I say writing is like um, navigating from north to south London. It's much easier when you have an A to Z or a sat nav now because we don't have A to Zs. There used to be little books in order to navigate. We, they don't exist. So, you know, if you know the route you're going to take, you, maybe you won't get so lost traveling because South London is, you know, it's easy to get lost in if you're a North Londoner. So I like to have my roadmap and uh, kind of know which direction I'm going in and then fill in the blanks. But also I, I work by one very simple philosophy – and I can't remember where I read it. It's not my own idea. It's don't get it right, get it written, right? Maybe it was William Goldman, I don't know. And because I think often we get stopped. You know, the problem is you start writing something and um, you're looking for perfection and then you, you don't write anymore and you get stopped. So I think you need to finish your piece of work and then go back and edit and edit again until it's, um, until it's right. And then work with someone. If it's your own project, work with someone a producer who is creative and can help guide you, you know, in a direction that you both feel is is right. Also, there comes a time where, you know, maybe you learn this lesson later in life that you have to listen to your inner voice and your instinct sometimes. Because I think often we try to appease other people. As a writer, you know, you have a powerful producer who's saying, who's maybe financing it, and you want to just appease them so you kind of say yes to everything and there comes a point where you have to that little i saw steven spielberg did you see that thing on facebook that keynote speech he gave where he said you've got there's a whisper inside of you and i tell my kids you know it's that inner voice that whispers that's the voice you have to learn to to listen to Um, not the voices that are shouting loudly but that inner instinct and that's what instinct is it's when you kind of you know instinctively what's right and it doesn't shout loud enough so you don't always act on it um but you've got to know when it appears to be able to act on it 
Great advice. Very good advice. Unfortunately, we've got to wrap up, which is a real shame. We are doing a script chat next door to ask more questions and talk to us a bit more one-on-one, I believe, so do head there. Thank you very much for all your time, but I'd like to thank all my guests, John Strickland, John Sen, and Jonathan Newman. I'm Giles Olson. Thank you. <laughs>